Welcome to the Nowhere Office. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. Stefan and I are going to be looking at the whole question of work and the future of work post-pandemic in this series, helped in our thinking by a range of expert voices from management, business, academia. Yes, we're going to be standing on the shoulders of giants, of insiders from across the spectrum of the working world of the office to ask, is the future of the office going to stay fixed in hours, in place, or is it going to be, as Julia has called it, a new nowhere office? Both Stefan and I are passionate about the topic of work. He is a management thinker and writer, author of books such as Myths of Management and How to Be a Better Leader. And he writes regularly for the FT, The Guardian and Prospect on questions of business and management. And Julia is an entrepreneur and also a business and management writer, currently chair of the Demos Workshift Commission and author of the paper and soon to be book, The Nowhere Office, the subject of this podcast. And our topic today, this first episode in this first series of the Nowhere Office is, well, where are we office-wise? Are we somewhere, nowhere, or the middle of nowhere? Are we in the middle of what Donald Rumsfeld might call known unknowns in terms of the future of work and the workplace? Coming up in this programme. I remember long years ago, going to some kind of reception at British Telecoms and the chairman showing off what the future is going to be like with visual communication as well as audible. And we all said, oh God, no, we don't want that. (laughs) And yes, here we are. As decisions are being made in boardrooms, they need to now not just take into account numbers, but also the pulse in terms of how employees feel, how much energy they have, how motivated they, they are, how loyal they are, and also what stakeholders are feeling and therefore how they're going to behave and whether they will support and champion or try to undermine what the corporate is doing. So feelings have a new level of importance now that they've never had before. Think of a typewriter and call to mind the litany of names that came and went from the time of its invention in 1868 to its demise in the late 20th century. Royal, Olivetti, Olympia, Adler, Smith Corona and Remington. Remington was an early manufacturer, also a gunmaker, proof of the close relation between movable type and movable gun parts. That's our resident office historian, Andrew St George there, who's going to give us the origins of the typewriter. Before that, you heard author and philosopher Charles Handy and Justine Lutterett of the Centre for Synchronous Leadership. Both address the seismic shifts happening in the world of work. But first, you'll hear a panel discussion that will usually have two guests. Only today, I'm going to be that second guest. Yes, well, as as Julia says, we're going to usually have two guests to speak to. But today we've got only one for two reasons. First, because we've got a real thoroughgoing expert. We still believe in experts here and exceptional thinker on the question of the office and the workspace. He's written a million words of blogs now over the past decade on this subject from two wonderful books. First, The Elemental Workplace and then following up Elemental Change and he is Neil Usher. Neil, hello. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. And also because my co-presenter, Julia, has also just written a paper called The Nowhere Office, on which this whole series is, is anchored and was covered in last week's Economist in the Bartleby column. I thought I'd really do this by interviewing both of you, Julia and Neil, as my guests today. How does that, uh, how does that sound? Terribly daunting, Stefan. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Well, Julia, first to you, 
the Nowhere office, perhaps you can give us the elevator pitch or summary story about what you've been exploring in this in this recent bit of work. Well, look, like all of us, as in us three at the very least, this question about the future of work has been around for a very long time. And we've had, in a sense, lots of false starts, haven't we? We've had the thought about flexible working and we've had some degree of work shift around moving away from the office into into workspaces and co-working but none of it's really taken off and of course the pandemic has ended up being a massive catalyst and so sitting in my house home working over many months I I wanted to dig into it and it occurred to me that this is a moment when the future of the office is literally nowhere. So the headline is less of an elevator pitch, it's more a reality check that I don't know where we're going, we are nowhere. But what I do think all the evidence is showing, I mean really overwhelmingly, is that people, workers, favour a shift towards a more what's called the hybrid model. Neil, when you hear the phrase nowhere office, and I know you've had a chance to look at Studio's paper, what, what thoughts come to your mind? I think I sort of was first thrown back really to a paper that certainly in workplace circles sort of started the the trend really of the last, there's an argument really, whether it's the last decade or the last 20 years, but somewhere in between, which is the the shift in office design and specification to more sort of activity-based working, which was a, a paper in 1985 that was published in Harvard Business Review by two architects, Lachetti and Stone, which was, uh, your office is where you are. Um, which was the first time, really, I think, that our industry had started to get its head around the fact that actually the office might literally be us. We might be our own office. You know, and this was before a lot of the technological convenience that we have today. And I have a sort of probably a slightly unpopular view, which I, I think this goes back to Marvin Gaye in 1962, which is wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. And I think that, you know, someone was probably sitting there, one of those two two characters or someone that they knew was probably sort of sitting there listening to it thinking, do you know what, that's how I work. That's how I live my working life. And that's how we could all potentially live our working lives. But I do think we're in a bit of a phony period at the moment, really. We are still in the safe harbour of being at home. We've been used to sort of 12 months ago or so being in the safe harbour of technically being based in or around the office But a lot of what we're facing with the decisions that we're hearing about large companies saying we're going to do this, we're going to do that in relation to our offices, we haven't actually started to do anything because we haven't actually had people coming back into a workplace situation to sort of try and even put their toe in the water to get used to sort of how this new world of not necessarily being anywhere will work. So I do think we're in this sort of very interesting period, Julia, as you said, we are technically nowhere at the the moment because we haven't actually got any kind of clarity around what a new day looks like, but that will be coming to us uh, very soon. I think that the history of how we got to this moment is really important and really interesting. And of course, you can start, if you like, with the sort of Taylorism and the idea of management being linked to people's productivity on a production line. Or you could jump, as I prefer to, to a much more recent period, which is 2007-8. 2007 was an absolutely pivotal year in terms of the internet and it was Facebook and Twitter and Airbnb and it was the publication of a book called The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss which 
became a bestseller, stayed on the bestseller list for seven years, and it articulated the Nowhere Office. I mean, it literally said, what if you could just do your work incredibly quickly, remotely, and keep your bosses happy? And it absolutely captured the zeitgeist. And a year later, of course, we had the big financial crash. And then Frank Duffy, the legendary architect, gave an interview in which he said that the building itself is now not fit for purpose in the way it was intended as a workspace because really it's the wrong measurement of a unit of time. For me, this whole conversation hinges as much as anything else about the building, the physical place in which work is done. I don't know what you think about that, Neil. I guess what I'm struggling with it, and this isn't a criticism of of, of anyone because it's a, a natural response, but I think in spending the best part of a year really thinking about and looking after ourselves as individuals. I think most organizations have become rather atomized. I think we have become very self-centric and self-focused. And I think on that basis, when we look at a lot of the research that's been done about what people want, it's what I want. This is my day. I want to go into the office two or three days a week. And so because we've become so individually focused, I think one of the things we've forgotten is what it feels like to be part of an active community. You know, our, our ties are weaker than they were. You know, we, we may have eight calls a day online, but how strong are the relationships that we're developing here? I mean, I've been working with several clients who've been taking people on during this period of time who've never met a single one of their colleagues, you know, and one particular client, half of their number have never actually been into their office and met their colleagues. And they think they're doing okay at the moment, but they haven't even really started to scratch the surface. And they are seriously looking forward to being in a physical space where they can start to bond as a team because they believe that will then help them to be better when they are remote. So they need some of that time in in order to be able to do that. So my concern here really is that in becoming individually focused, I think that makes it more uh, sort of understandable that we would associate with nowhere as an idea because it's a very individual concept, sort of nowhere. We can't just assume that if you want people in the office, it's because you don't trust them, because that isn't, that might be the case in some instances, but it's not always the case. Yes, but, 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 first of all, I would say you are completely right that people need to collaborate and connect and be social with each other, and that that has got to happen in a space, a workplace, a place of work, some of the time. But I'm also against the idea of stasis because I don't think the workplace was very happy when it was unchanged. We only have to look at the endemic stress figures and the low productivity. Uh, Without doubt the opportunity for a reset I think is something that irrespective of your view on the future everybody is welcomed. I think you know this is this is a privilege and 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 a fantastic opportunity. But I also think that that atomization I referred to has led to something of a, of, a, of a refocus again on productivity, individual productivity in particular, getting stuff done. But that focus on productivity is, is almost a sort of stripped down version of working, because actually one of the things that I think we've lost sight of is the overall contribution we make to an organization of which productivity is just a subset. It's just a part of that. I suppose there's one aspect of productivity that can't be captured, as you say, is the conversations that aren't happening. So lists of tasks might be being completed. And on the face of it, that looks like productivity. But a lot of conversations, serendipity isn't happening. My older daughter asked me the other day, 
do you miss the office? Which sounds like a simple question. I mean, I've been working from home for quite a long time, but she said, do you miss the office? And I thought, well, I don't miss furniture or the lift or the canteen and aspects of commuting perhaps, but I do miss what happened in the office when I got there on the occasions I turned up. I do miss the people that were there and the sorts of conversations that we could have there which to my mind are not completely or satisfactorily being recreated technologically, even if on the face of it, the to-do list gets worked through. I definitely think um, I've been a long-term advocate for what I call social health. You know, we are social beings. And if anything, I think the workplace has been geared far more to the technology and the automated future rather than the present and the future, which is that humans in the machine are what makes the difference. And our social selves are, I believe, going to play a much more prominent role when they come together in a working environment. So I, I think in some respects, we might be in danger of going down the binary argument ourselves. I think we all want the same thing, which is creativity, community, collaboration and results. And I definitely think that the experiment to be entirely based remotely is not what anybody would want. I think we also need to think about in, in offices as well, it's we're, we're very sort of inward focused when we think about the organisations we work for, but those spaces are part of a broader community as well of regular visitors, suppliers, clients, you know, the local community in which that office is placed, the sort of cafes and restaurants and bars and things we may go to out from that space. You know, it's not just the inward facing experience of being with our colleagues that we're really focused on. And I think some of that gets missed as well. It's the much broader community that the office and organizational community sits within that is incredibly important to people. And the whole strata of those sorts of conversations and social interaction that people will have. And it's quite possible to have that locally if we're working locally rather than, you know, necessarily sort of commuting or traveling into a central office location. But I think the point I'm getting at really is that there needs to be some landing point. I think that, you know, we, we can have as much of a mix of that type of activity as possible, but there needs to be somewhere that feels like our work home as opposed to our domestic home that makes us feel when we return to it like we have an association with it as a structure and with it in terms of those people who are there, even if we then go away again. And I think that's probably what worries me most about nowhere is, is feeling lost in that way and feeling like I don't belong anywhere in that sense. But, but that, that sort of just, just having somewhere to come back to, I think for most people is, is incredibly important. So we're nowhere and somewhere, maybe even at the same time in that liminal <laughs> confusing sense. But it's it something to work possible. Yeah. Neil and Julia, thanks so much for your for your thoughts on this and much more to talk about in the future. Thanks. You're listening to the Nowhere Office. Now it's time for a working life. My name is Justine Lutrod and I'm director of the Center for Synchronous Leadership. We are a leadership consultancy, think tank and membership organization focused on systemic change in the corporate sector. And we've been going since 2010. What I've learned in my working life that's a big question. There's, there's lots of things. I think that this leg of my working life as an entrepreneur, I've learned to be very careful with feedback. So on the one hand, to embrace it, because you need to be tuned in to what all parts of the system are receiving from you and, and how you might be perceived. That's only useful, valuable information. But on the other hand, almost any feedback I would have received in its direct form at the beginning might have led me astray. 
because my journey has been characterized by being unfamiliar, <laughs> being different uh, demographically. I'm often in worlds where I am the only ethnic minority, the only woman, a little bit less so now. So there were many factors that made it such that when I went to big conferences, people didn't necessarily think I was the most interesting person in the room. And so that's one aspect of being unfamiliar, but my ideas have been unfamiliar. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite creative. I tend to see things differently. And not everyone can always see what I can see. And initially, when I began a journey around ethical leadership and wasn't getting that validation, it would have been very easy or very tempting, especially in the middle of a recession, to sort of back off and try to do things the normal way. I think one of the most important shifts that business can embrace right now is understanding the need to be sensitive to feelings. We're seeing this with COVID because of mental health and concerns, but also energy levels. All of a sudden we're noticing how we feel in a different way, partly because we have enough stillness to notice it and partly because many people are struggling. But in addition to that, there are stakeholders whose voice hasn't been heard, who now have a different outlet with social media and how they feel matters. How they feel can affect the reputation of an organization. And so as decisions are being made in boardrooms, they need to now not just take into account numbers, but also the pulse in terms of how employees feel, how much energy they have, how motivated they, they are, how loyal they are, and also what stakeholders are feeling and therefore how they're gonna behave and whether they will support and champion or try to undermine what the corporate is doing. So feelings have a new level of importance now that they've never had before. And now here is Dr. Andrew St. George with the history of the office, starting with the typewriter. Think of a typewriter and call to mind the litany of names that came and went from the time of its invention in 1868 to its demise in the late 20th century. Royal, Olivetti, Olympia, Adler, Smith Corona and Remington. Remington was an early manufacturer, also a gun maker, proof of the close relation between movable type and movable gun parts. The New York company made its first typewriters with floral patterns, as it assumed users would be women taking dictation. Well, soon enough they were, in large numbers, in typing pools, and what was an individual machine became co-opted into a collective effort from the 1880s onwards. Typing pools filled by ranks of emancipated and well-educated working women, accurate and speedy, at 100 words per minute. Mark Twain was the first author to submit a typescript rather than a manuscript. That was in 1874. Jack Kerouac, son of a printing family, wrote On the Road in 1951 on 10-foot rolls of teleprinter paper, a way of staying in the flow and not changing paper. Another Jack, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, never got beyond that first single line, typed out repeatedly on a ream of paper. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Some places still use typewriters for form-filling, certificates, and work too secret to risk being hacked. That means government agencies, courts, defence, prisons, whose inmates are not allowed internet access, but are allowed transparent typewriters made by Swintec in New Jersey. And there's money in other kinds of correction too. Betty Naismith Graham invented correction fluid in the 1950s and sold her company, Liquid Paper, to Gillette for 48 million in 1979. 
I love the raffish side of the typewriter. It means freedom and style to write what you want. And you can still buy that Olivetti, just not in the modish Ferrari red model called Valentine, created by its inventor to use any place but the office to keep amateur poets company on quiet Sundays. So all the way from Johannes Gutenberg in the 15th century, a printing press on your desk to write what, when, and how long you like. Well, I'm delighted that for our first podcast, I'm joined by a dear old friend and mentor, and dare I use the word guru, Charles Handy, author of several books, of course, academic career at the London Business School, and an inspiration to many, and as we will hear, still going strong, which is a great delight. Charles, in, in reality, you're going through what so many of us are going through, which is this sense of isolation or removal from the office, from our familiar surroundings. I mean, you are at home, of course, but we're speaking today through this new technology or new to many of us of Zoom. What are your thoughts about this isolation and this what that's done to work, to employees, managers? What How do you think we're all coping with it? Well, I'm coping very well because I've always lived like this. I mean, I've always lived in two places, in London and in Norfolk. London's for busy, busy meeting people, culture and all this other stuff. Norfolk is for being alone and silent and writing. No interruptions except from the pheasants in the early morning. (laughs) So there's nothing strange here, except that I can't go up to London. But uh, yeah, I miss real people. I mean, it's lovely to see you, Stefan, but (laughs) it'd be even better if you were sitting opposite me. I don't know what it is, but there's something chemical about when I've got actual real people there, there's a reaction which I get instant feedback. Whereas it's very much one way, me to you and then you to me. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know how to cope with that. I think you remember Nigel Nicholson at London Business School. I think he said that we, we do actually have to smell each other. He's gone to so far as saying that, that we, we do need to be in a room with people at, at least at certain times. And it's clearly something that's denied us at the moment. Although I, I'm impressed with how well, as it were, the show has been kept on the roads in so many businesses and organisations. People have been quite resourceful. Perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, but so many businesses are still functioning. So much work is still being done. Some people think they're being more productive like this. Well, also, we've talked to our neighbours for the first time for a long time. And people are discovering they don't always bite. So um, <laughs> so that's been nice. And, you know, people have been neighbourly and helped each other out and discovered that it's actually quite good. I mean, what I call Aristotle's paradox, that you get really happy by making other people happy. And I think that's what's happening at the moment, and people are discovering that's nice. Well, you've never had any illusions about organisations and the workplace. And, of course, decades ago, you were pointing out how our relationship with the organisation was bound to change. And and this experiment that we're going through is proving the, the truth and the accuracy of what you were talking about all those years ago. Do you think that what you were talking about, neighbourliness, the local... Do you think that when we emerge in a few months' time from all this, that even the the concept of the workplace is going to be reassessed? Well, there's a good news and there's a bad possibility. The good possibility is that I've always said the good organisation is like a a small English village. 
in which everybody knows each other and you don't have to have job titles or anything, you're just Stefan or Charles. And we all know what you do and you all help each other out and nobody owns the village. You belong to it, but you don't own it. And that's the recipe for a great organization. So that might continue. The bad news is that we're being taught that people are dangerous and we must keep our distance. And that might, but that might continue. And I think that would be very sad. But I, my belief is humanity will triumph. People need people. And so I think we're going to be okay. But I have friends who actually prefer this way of working. I mean, one of my friends is a, a big cheese in the sort of financial world. And he has a, a team that he works with. We're all around the world. And he meets with them every morning on Zoom. But he can just call on the ones he wants to talk to. And he can mute all, mute all the people he doesn't want to hear from. And he finds that gives him much more control over his team. But I suppose these were people he already knew quite well to some extent. That's a very good point. If you, if you know them really, then this is very useful. If, you, if this is not the best way to meet people for the first time, I don't think. Mm. But yes, if you know them, and for instance, uh, me talking to my, my grandchildren or my, my daughter in London, this is very good because, I mean, the picture just reminds me who she is. So that's okay. So I think we'll go on like that. I mean, I've always argued that you can't trust an email because you've no idea who wrote it. It could have been the dog. And so you can't trust people you can't smell, going back to your friend. But once you've smelt them, then you can communicate with emails and any other way. And so I said, that's why organizers continue to have wonderful international business meetings, which sort of people like you and me talk to, in order that you can smell each other, mm. so that you know who you're actually having an email from. Yes. And I think that'll go on. I think organizations will, well, I've written a recent piece where I said, Actually, organizations are going to be like a gentleman's club in Pall Mall. <laughs> which, if you think about it, only members are allowed in. And once you're in, there are lots of offices, but they don't have the name of a person. They have the name of a function. In other words, for reading, for eating, mm. and so on. And so lots of people want to work like that. They want... They want privacy, but they want immediate access to other people. And so I think the wise organizations will have a sort of club annex with the main, the main feature, which will be the dining room. Mm. And they probably offer free breakfasts and free suppers to allow people to congregate, but then separate out onto their other. Charles, I'm always reminded that when you talk about your, the earlier times of your career for Shell, out in, in Borneo and what was then Malaya, Malaysia, you had the freedom to take decisions, get things wrong, and no one back in London would, would know because you were so remote from HQ and so on. Uh, we were opening a, a new petrol station in Kuching, the capital of Sarawak, where I was based. Well, as I drove to work, past this service station, which I'm going to open later that day. 
I saw that the fuse, huge 5,000 drum that held all the gasoline had popped up in the middle of the forecourt because the, the town was on a riverbank and the water table was quite high. And we obviously hadn't put enough weights on top of the tank. <laughs> this was a minor disaster. But luckily, the stage manager, sales manager wasn't coming for another week. So we managed to push it down, put enough cement on top of it. And it all was beautiful by the time the sales manager arrived. And the photograph was taken with him and me standing there on this perfect, perfect new service station. So the point is really that if you can hide away and make a mistake and correct it before anybody notices, the learning is much better because you're not punished for it. I mean, it's quite difficult to learn when you're punished all the time for making a mistake. Because when I was writing my memoir, I discovered that everything I knew I discovered from my mistakes, not from my successes. And so if you learn from your mistakes, you must be allowed to make them and not be punished from them, otherwise you'll stop making them. Because mistakes come because you experiment, which we should encourage. So we should let people be invisible. But it's very difficult these days because they record you behind your scene, like Amazon record all your footsteps in, your, in their warehouse. You know, the endless sort of high-tech video sort of cameras. So I suppose nowadays there would be in a, some kind of video of the tank erupting. Well, my sales manager would have been on the phone. But luckily there wasn't any telephone connection. <laughs> So I could have said, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. <laughs> so the great thing about Zoom is you can mute your sales manager. <laughs> and I hope that becomes permissible. Now we're working with this idea of the, the nowhere office, Charles, which, which I suppose is built on the idea that the HQ is going to almost certainly be reduced and that with this remote working technology, we're going to be, as you say, like creative people and writers like yourself have been doing this for a long time anyway, but more and more of us are going to be required to manage our own time, make our own work happen away from the workplace. Do you think we're going to cope? Do you think the right leadership is in place to make this happen well? The camera's certainly intrusive. I mean, there's no question, but we're having this sort of extended experiment with it at the moment, but it, it sounds like some of it's going to become permanent. Well, I mean, you get used to it, don't you? But I, I remember long years ago, going to some kind of reception at British Telecoms and the chairman showing off what the future is going to be like with visual communication as well as audible. And we all said, oh God, no, we don't want that. <laughs> and yet here we are. I think that some people work best on their own, you know, and they'll, they'll be delighted with the way the things are going. And other people can't work at all without other people around them. And they will, they will use the Zoom as a sort of substitute for reality. So you'll have both. But I don't think that nowhere office is going to survive unless there's a somewhere. <laughs> yes. Perhaps yes. only occasionally. But at least if we get rid of COVID, we could actually say, I mean, every Wednesday and Thursday, we all get together. That's the only days you can have meetings on and so on. 
and that's the only days when the restaurant's free. And that's when everybody gets together, not necessarily at weekends. You have midweek meetings of real people. And then the rest of the time, it's, it's Zoom or telephone. So it's a compromise. But I think people want to move in and out, really, from being totally private to being in a huddle. I think one thing we'll carry across is the, the idea of a puddle or a huddle. Well, he's as priceless as ever, Stefan, isn't he? Yes, I wish he was still doing Thought for the Day, actually. It would raise the quality level. So much experience and insight, but also vitality. It is a joy to listen to. You were struck, weren't you, by something that Charles said about the nowhere office as a concept only working if it's attached to a somewhere place. I thought that was a nice way of putting it because I, I think, you know, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the real estate industry, uh, or the office owners, <laughs> but I, I think there will have to be something called HQ. Almost certainly, there will, there will have to, there will still have to be some physical meetings. There's a danger of more sort of elitism springing up where only a certain lucky few are allowed into HQ, and, and the really important meetings happen face to face, and everybody else is, you know, at the end of a, a Zoom call, and so that's something to guard against too. But undoubtedly, what we've learned in this future hybrid form is that so many meetings weren't really necessary, so much travel wasn't really necessary, so much time and energy can be and carbon can be saved if people aren't travelling, commuting, and so on, and living locally, as Charles also said, you know, the local has been reintroduced. In to our lives. Well, the nowhere office is in a way an expression of that twixt and between liminal space we find ourselves in where we are learning. And of course, Charles Handy talks about a learning organisation. That's it for our first episode. Thank you for listening. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. I'm Stefan Stern. And thank you once again for listening to the nowhere office. This has been the nowhere office. It's an editorial intelligence production, and our producer is Callum McRae. Find out more at editorialintelligence.com.